This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Attorney General Mike Hunter says he is leaving his job on July 1st. The state's top prosecutor says he's resigning as personal matters coming to light would be a distraction. This comes after the lost Ogle released the, his divorce petition from last week. The satirical news and information website alleges the filing is, is related to an extramarital affair between Hunter and a state government employee. Neva, what were your thoughts when you heard this news? Well, I think everyone was totally surprised and shocked. Uh, it's something that uh, certainly public officials, their private life does become public. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what we're seeing now is this continue to unfold. But the, uh, the real important point now is that uh, Governor Stitt will be uh, uh, very quickly uh, making his selection for who will be the next attorney general he'll make that he'll make that selection whoever that person is uh, will have to hit the ground running someone uh, that uh, obviously is going to need a, a resume and a track record and and the uh, probably the political ability mm -hmm. to uh, not only get in and navigate uh, being the attorney general but also run for election next year uh, if that if that's the case because the attorney general and all statewide office holders will be up uh, in 2022. So um, I think many of us remember that uh, Mike Hunter came mm -hmm. into uh, the attorney general position in, in much the same fashion when Greg, uh, when uh, um, uh, Scott Pruitt left and Mary Fallon, uh, governor, appointed, um, appointed Mike Hunter. So um, there'll be a lot of political intrigue. I think there'll be, certainly the names are swirling out there, uh, both those who would like their name in contention and those who uh, are advancing names, I'm certain, to the governor's office and his people um, to at least uh, uh, take a look at. So I think I think that um, the general sense, I think, politically around the Capitol this, uh, in the last couple of days has been that um, there was an expectation that the governor will likely move fairly quickly uh, to, uh, uh, to make his selection and get someone at the helm and continue on because there's so many uh, things on the plate <laughs> at yeah. the attorney general's office, as we know, in the headlines every day. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, difficult, uh, give difficult time, certainly, uh, you know, a very uh, uh, unfortunate, heartbreaking situation for those of us who have known the hunters for years. Uh, and uh, so it is, uh, it, it will be interesting to see now what the governor does. He also has a Supreme Court uh, justice that uh, that appointment is uh, in the mix. So uh, we're, we're continuing to see the governor uh, be able to uh, put uh, very, uh, you know, very important pieces in the political equation in terms of the selections that he is now being uh, able to make. Ryan. Well, you know, I, I just want to say at, at the outset, I, you know, the private lives of public officials to me are irrelevant. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we should be digging into those things. I think that, um, you know, that's, you know, ev even though you are a public official and you know, you're ostensibly, you know, put yourself out there, you know, to the extent that this deals with issues between consenting adults uh, on, in, on any of the parties here, you know, to me that doesn't matter, and I don't think that it matters to most Oklahomans. I think that the issue that most Oklahomans will care about uh, in the context, you know, to the extent that it's relevant in, in this divorce and everything else that's moving forward, was, was there any sort of government uh, uh, funds or power misappropriated 
uh, you know, in the course of, you know, what is otherwise consenting behavior between adults. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, that's an issue that I think will probably be examined and, and rightfully so the rest of it, you know, should be off the table. You know, the, uh, the governor has a choice right now. He can either appoint somebody as a caretaker, uh, somebody that's probably not going to run for re-election or who would assure the governor that they wouldn't run for re-election uh, and then let the Republican primary populate itself or the governor can pick somebody that would stand for re-election as an incumbent and possibly clear at least some of the Republican field that would want to vie for this position. You know, I think that in the, the folks that would want to vie for this, John Eccles is you know, really at the top mm -hmm. uh, in terms of experience and uh, understanding of the position. And I know that kind of behind the scenes, people have talked about him as an, an attorney general candidate at some point in the future. So now that that office will be coming vacant, will he, will he be appointed? Will he announce his name for uh, you know, the, uh, the Republican primary for that position? Um, and then, you know, if, if not, uh, leader Eccles, floor leader Eccles in the, in the house, who is it? Is it somebody insider within the AG's office that understands the machinations of that office already? So it'll be interesting to see what the governor does, but he needs to act fast because there's a lot that Oklahomans depend on the attorney general's office. For. And I would agree. I think, uh, certainly, uh, John Eccles name has been out there as someone who uh, would be an attractive candidate for attorney general, but, uh, being in the position in the legislature he is now, I'm not certain that he is able to be appointed by the governor, but certainly would not preclude him from now, um, you know, looking at that uh, race next year if he wanted to, as will, uh, you know, as will countless dozens, I think, at least seriously look at it, uh, because it's a much different equation than going against an, a sitting uh, sitting attorney general. So um, in, in terms of uh, someone appointed versus someone who had been elected. So I, I think it will be a fact fascinating uh, race that uh, probably develops next year as a result of what's happened this week. Uh, well, we've talked a lot about Republicans right now. You know, it'll be interesting to see if Democrats field anybody for that race. You know, Mike Hunter was, was unique in that he had a, a ton of Democratic support. I mean, if you looked at his fundraising ledger, you know, he had prominent Democratic lawyers, prominent former Democratic elected officials, including statewide elected officials. I believe Governor Henry uh, at one point either raised money for him or gave money or endorsed in some mm -hmm. sort of fashion. And so Mike Hunter would have been a very difficult candidate for any Democrat to run against because there are so many Democratic institutional players that were already in Hunter's corner. Well, uh, and so if, if does this become a more partisan race uh, with Hunter out of the equation? I mean, Hunter played a partisan script a lot of the time. I mean, he was a key member in the Republican Attorney General's Association uh, and, you know, filed on all of the lawsuits that he was supposed to file on to, to make the points that he needed to make that he stood with Trump and against the liberals. And um, but. You know, so that, that office did become more partisan under him, but he did enjoy bipartisan support to get there. And I think all of these statewide offices, they are partisan. They're elected either as a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, uh, we, I think we expect and see that. And certainly once in office, it's very easy. I mean, the attorney general, uh, if whoever that person is, has every opportunity to, uh, uh, to be very effective in fundraising across the board, Republicans and Democrats, because I think it is about that, uh, it's about that relationship of uh, who you support that you believe is best in 
occupying the office regardless of sometimes the politics of uh, the partisanship of it. So um, I think I think the bottom line is looking again toward 22 is that there's every expectation that it's going to be a very strong Republican field. It's going to be a strong Republican year. If we look at these numbers that continue to come out in Oklahoma uh, with the with the with uh, the president's uh, favorable unfavorable, I think it sets up very well for Republicans to uh, continue to do well in the election. Governor Stitt signed the more than $9 billion budget. It includes restoration of funding to most state agencies, which saw cuts of about 4% last year, and it funds the expansion of Medicaid passed by voters. The agreement also calls for cuts to the corporate income tax rate from 6% to 4% and reducing the personal income tax rate by 0.25%. Ryan, what do you think of this bu- budget? Well, you know, it's you know not much different than what we talked about last week. I right. think the real difference is looking back to last year. You know, so the governor signing this is, is a huge difference from what we saw with the governor vetoing it last year and within hours, the legislature coming back and overriding that veto. And, you know, I think that uh, Republican leaders in the, in the House and the Senate and uh, the governor's office are right to say that this budget reflects some historic investments in core services. Uh, but I also think that it's true that the Democrats' complaint that we're putting so much in savings in a year right now, following uh, the COVID pandemic, which we're, we're still in, uh, you know, you know we're, we're kind of at the, I think we're feeling we're at the end of it. Everybody's got fatigue, I've got fatigue. And, uh, you know, if you haven't gone back to normal, you're pretty close to it. But for a lot of Oklahomans, normal seems a long ways away. Uh, the, the economic effects of the pandemic are going to be with us for a very long time. And there is a real need for core services in Oklahoma to help Oklahomans deal with those, uh, that economic fallout for years to come. And so to see that need uh, and a lot of the needs that came to, to the forefront, uh, you know, during the pandemic, some of them we're dealing with, you know, rural broadband, uh, you know, Speaker McCall really made that uh, an emphasis of his at the beginning of the session. We won't see the fruits of that for years to come, but they, they laid a solid foundation there. Um, but we are leaving a lot on the table. And then we're taking a lot off the table for future years. $375 million, I, I think, is the annualized cost of these, uh, these tax cuts. And the return on investment that Oklahomans get from these tax cuts isn't nearly what we would get if we were investing those in services that directly uh, benefit the people of Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think what we see out of this uh, this budget and what we see out of this session that's coming to a close is that it has been a year of good negotiating. I think when you bring all parties to the table, this time, as Ryan said, last year, not everyone was uh, really, were major players at the table. And to have the House, the Senate, the governor's team all working, hammering out, trading back and forth. I mean, uh, doing the the uh, heavy lifting on trying to create a budget in a good year when they had the opportunity to uh, not only uh, make historic investments in education, not only uh, fund core services at the levels that uh, people expect and they and they were able to do, but uh, they were able to shore up the pension funds and the road funds that uh, that had to be utilized uh, uh, previously. They were able to. Uh, restore funding to all of the state agencies almost that uh, had reductions uh, last year. So I think when we talk about the balance of being able to fund government uh, and be able to also be innovative and looking at uh, doing other things that will be productive in terms of uh, bringing jobs to Oklahoma, 
in terms of uh, uh, improving the economy, stimulating the economy even further. We saw a number of those kind of things. Uh, in, it, we also saw the Opportunity Scholarship, uh, the, the, uh, the move to uh, build that program to uh, uh, the $50 million mark instead of uh, $5 million. We saw um, uh, some of these uh, some of these are the issues the film um, the film uh, incentive uh, tax incentive the thirty million dollars and other things like that that there's always a give and take uh, even among uh, even among people in their own parties I mean there's differences of opinion but you do have uh, at the end of it you do have things that have gone through a very intense process the back and forth the committee work and you know I think it is a very uh, open and transparent process I mean I know the Democrats often want to argue that that they believe that this is just something that uh, is done behind closed doors and jammed through at the last minute, but there's just, there's nothing true about that. I mean, it is a long process, and frankly, even the budget writers will, and the appropriators will tell you, it's a year-long process. I mean, they, they are they are well into the work before folks ever come to the building uh, the 1st of uh, February to start the real session. So um, I think it's a, it's a bright uh, look at this year, hopefully uh, looking at uh, not only what we have in savings, but looking at uh, the prospects of the economy really continuing to uh, uh, continuing to roll in a very vibrant way. Uh, that makes next year's uh, session look uh, equally good, at least at this juncture. Real tangible outcome of the budget, uh, just real quick, the funding of uh, driver's license examiners in rural areas. I mean, that, that may seem like a small deal, but if you live in a rural area, it's huge. I remember Representative Ryan McMullen and I working uh, to, to fight to protect those driver's license examiner positions in rural Oklahoma over a decade ago, and that's always been a fight. Um, and we've seen a restoration of funding for that. That's huge. They're going to do these mega centers that are similar to the vaccine rollout mega centers for the real to, ID for the real ID for especially for rural Oklahomans. That's when we think about you know where do we see our tax dollars going? Um, I think in that you know the the long lines that we've seen at examiner stations, the long drives that some people have to take just to take a test. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's going to be a really changed over the next year. And I think you're right. I think th- I think that's responding to what uh, the citizens uh, see as great needs in their own communities and in, in the state at large. And I think uh, those uh, those mega centers, that $6.6 million is going to be money well spent so that folks have an easier way to deal with uh, getting a real ID, being able to deal with getting what they need in terms of license renewals or first license or whatever it happens to be. And when you look at other things like the creation of the uh, the children's mental health uh, unit at uh, at uh, OU Health, I mean, almost $10 million appropriated for that, much needed. I mean, there mm-hmm. the, it is something that uh, everyone has talked about and talked about. Now we're seeing things uh, become uh, uh, funded and soon to be a reality that will benefit all Oklahomans and certainly the children who are in need of the of these services. The State Board of Education rescinds its settlement on a lawsuit over funding for charter schools. The decision came after state lawmakers passed legislation to settle the issue. The Redbud School Funding Act uses more than $38 million for grants to all public schools, including charter schools. That comes from the medical marijuana taxes. The board is now asking the Charter School Association to drop its lawsuit. Neva, have we now seen the end of this dispute? I think we're close to it. I mean, we, I mean, we don't know for certain until all of the paperwork is signed, but I think there's every indication. And this is really a, a big, big deal. I mean, when you look at it, this is the first time that we will see uh, funds directly to the charter schools. 
Um, it will also do, you know, it'll be, do tremendous things for these uh, traditional school districts who uh, have below average property tax bases and will be large, uh, large beneficiaries of, of this change in, in the uh, Redbud Redbud School Funding Act, uh, as it was dubbed. So I think that again, this is one of those issues. There was a lot of contention, a lot of uh, a lot of differences uh, across the board early on, but they continued to plug along and work it out. And I think at the end of it, uh, this is something that is a win-win for education, for kids, for the uh, for the citizens of Oklahoma across the board. Ryan, I should have called it the the Green Bud uh, funding, <laughs> right? you know, because to me that's that's a, a uh, critical aspect of the story is that the funding from this is coming from medical marijuana revenues, which are, are enormous in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the ability to use that funding for uh, investments in the state. I think that that when when a lot of people voted for medical marijuana, they thought that, that was one of the the key aspects for them to to vote for this. Is that it was an increased way to generate revenue for the state, both in terms of money we're spending and in, in, uh, incarcerating a lot of folks that now are patients and or business owners uh, and, and doing incredibly well in Oklahoma. If you look at local economies over, over the pandemic, a lot of these municipalities, the thing that saved municipal budgets uh, were sales tax revenues coming in from medical marijuana. They were, they were deemed an essential business early on. They were able to stay open uh, uh, during the pandemic. And that was big uh, for a lot of these local governments. Now we're seeing it at the state level. It's, 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 it's critically important, though, to point out that medical marijuana programs are not, uh, even though they do generate you know, a revenue, they are not revenue generation programs by their very nature. They are, they are programs to deliver medicine to patients. And uh, ultimately, whenever you see states that have medical marijuana programs, they're not bankrolling a lot of money on it because they're investing that into regulation and enforcement. We're starting to see that some more this legislative session. Oma's doing a great job, but they need to they they need help and they need some time to to scale up and they'll get there. Uh, they'll get there. But um, the the real revenue generators are adult use marijuana states. You know, so we're kind of dipping our toe into using marijuana revenues for things other than. Uh, medical marijuana enforcement, if we ever move to an adult use state, that's where we're going to see really significant investments in things like education and healthcare. That's the potential there because, you know, you know, that is a revenue generation. You're, you're talking about a double tax. You know, right now we have a 7% excise tax. It's supposed to be low. There's waivers on that based, based on veteran status or disability. Um, but whenever you've, when you've got adult use, you're talking, you know, 15, 16% excise tax because we're not talking about patients that we're trying to gouge. We're talking about folks that want to do something recreationally uh, and responsibly, but you're going to pay for it. And uh, I hope at some point we see a lot of programs in Oklahoma that are benefiting from marijuana revenue. Well, and I think it is, uh, I mean, when you talk about 38 million and change of coming uh, earmarked out of the uh, out of this medical marijuana uh, money, it is significant, and it did open the door for uh, this to be a viable uh, a viable bill. And I think it is important to note that when the House voted on this on Monday, it was a 97 to one vote. I mean, what we had here was a a, a clear attempt and a successful attempt to uh, uh, to have uh, public charter schools and more than 300 traditional school districts. Uh, be the beneficiaries of this bill and to really equalize what had been a very uh, a very bad um, 
funding, you know, uh, mechanism in place that they were able to uh, they were able to rectify with this bill. So I think it's again you have to uh, uh, you have to kind of step back and look when lawmakers you know come together in a strong fashion to do something that is really critical and something that impacts everyone in Oklahoma because it benefits uh, our education system across the board. President Biden plans to make a trip to Tulsa on June 1st to recognize the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Details have yet to be released by the White House. Ryan, what do you think of the president's decision to come to the Greenwood District? I think it's a fitting tribute. Um, I think that having the president of the United States there to recognize uh, and, and, and bear witness to the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre um, is commensurate with the the stain on our state's history and on our nation's history uh, that this event uh, that this event represents, and so um, the I guess you know the downside there's going to be some disruption uh, to to the events uh, probably because mm-hmm. you know whenever you've got a, a president coming in, it's going to you know throw throw some things off. But I think that the the type of recognition and and spotlight that the president's visit will bring uh, to what happened in Tulsa. Uh, what continues to happen in Tulsa, um, and to to really move this dialogue along. Um, you know, a hundred years from now, uh, you think about a hundred years from now when they're celebrating, or or not celebrating, but but recognizing the 200th mm-hmm. anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. They're you know that they're going to look back to 2021 and and the president being here. I mean, if, if you think something a hundred years ago, well, that sounds nice. Oh, wait a second. The president was there. Uh, you know, I think that it's a, it's an important historical marker, uh, for where we at in Oklahoma right now. And, you know, you know, welcome president Biden. Neva. Well, I think I agree with Ryan. Anytime, uh, you have a United States president visit a community, uh, for, uh, any event, uh, and certainly in an, an event as significant as commemorating this hundredth anniversary, uh, of the uh, Tulsa race massacre, it is something noteworthy. And I think um, I think this has been certainly uh, the the commission and all of the work that's been done, you know, over the course of uh, you know more than a year uh, leading up to this. Um, it's uh, it's something that has gotten the attention. Certainly has elevated the conversation. The event uh, on Memorial Day, uh, the day before the president comes in, uh, will be nationally televised. I mean, this has sparked. Uh, a dialogue and something that uh, I think that we see folks a- across the board in Oklahoma recognizing that this is a this is a part of our history that needs to be told that needs to be understood. It certainly, uh, you know, was a you know one of the um, I think would be accurate to describe one of our lower points in, mm-hmm. in our in our state's history and something that uh, uh, clearly uh, needs to be uh, uh, needs to be talked about. But I also think the, the the sidebar to this conversation and talking specifically about the events coming up is that there doesn't need to be intense politi- you know uh, politicization of uh, events like this. And I think we've seen some attempt uh, bo- both by folks outside the state as well as perhaps some inside the state to try to do that from time to time and that is regrettable this is if 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 the intent is to remember if the intent is to have reconciliation if the intent is to move forward then trying to make these highly charged uh, uh, political statements or efforts uh, certainly diminishes all of that so hopefully it will be a uh, uh, it will be a commemoration that uh, the citizens of Tulsa 
as well as all Oklahomans will uh, uh, reflect on uh, during the Memorial Day weekend. And again, it's something that I think uh, we will uh, see a lot of attention uh, nationwide as well. The director of the Public Health Lab announces he's leaving the job after just four months. The decision by Dr. Michael Kaiser comes as the lab is trying to move from Oklahoma City to Stillwater under the direction of Governor Stitt. Ryan, how do you think Kaiser's resignation will impact the move? Well, I think it's just one more um, uh, just, you know, complete disconnect between, uh, you know, the uh, responsible plan uh, that would have moved the lab to, to where we are now. I mean, we, we're months into this, and we're down from 60 employees to 30 employees. Uh, an OPEA, Oklahoma Public Employees Association uh, spokesperson, mentioned that for every one of those employees, you're looking at about 10 years of experience. So we've got hundreds of years of collective experience that we've lost. Um, we've had to outsource several testing uh, to, to outside companies. Uh, you know, there's no word on whether or not that's impacted the timeliness of those tests or the, the, ver the veracity of them. But, you know, it, it is nevertheless you know, really concerning at a time when public confidence uh, in, uh, in health sciences uh, is, is divided. I mean, we've seen it become a partisan issue in many instances. And so people in the public need to have confidence uh, that, their, that their public health officials have the tools that they need and the resources they need to do the job right um, so that whenever, you know, they're talking about anything from vaccination numbers to, uh, you know, disease spread, that we, you know, can trust that. And so, you know, this is, and all of this comes from the decision by the governor, which was just such a, a strange move to, to make this announcement without consulting with the people in the lab on the ground there uh, to move from Oklahoma City to, to Stillwater. And, you know, I think that we're, we're kind of seeing that chaos uh, continue to unfold. You know, losing the director, they've said that they're going to step down into a, a lower level position until they can find a replacement, which is good. It, it provides some continuity, but you're still without a head of uh, ship right now. And, um, you know, we, we need that desperately in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, and, I, and you're right. I mean, there has to be someone that uh, assumes the mantle, someone uh, who becomes the director in charge and deals with all of these uh, problems that have been outlined. I mean, they are serious. They need to be uh, resolved. It's not a function of uh, not having the money. It's a function of, you know, needing a plan, needing the leadership, needing the uh, uh, the expertise uh, to get done what their, uh, what their function and role is. And so I think that uh, there'll be a lot of pressure um, in the coming months and through the summer. They've laid out some timelines uh, when some of these tests and things will roll back in and, and, and not be outsourced, as has been the case right now. And so I think if they don't deliver on that, there'll be a lot of scrutiny and a lot of pressure uh, come to bear as we get into uh, the fall and leading into another legislative session when folks will begin to start asking more questions and wanting more answers. So um, the, uh, the selection is important as any uh, head of any agency, any director, any official that is uh, being appointed by the governor. This is, uh, this is something very important, very time sensitive, and I think uh, there'll be a lot of folks uh, uh, watching and waiting to see what uh, takes place over the next several weeks. Well, and it would be interesting to hear the governor's explanation for how they got to this point. I mean, the, or, or at least a more satisfactory explanation. And we, we've heard that there's this synergy that's going to happen between the lab being in Stillwater and its proximity to other research 
uh, labs that are in Stillwater are already talking about animal sciences and uh, that they want this to become an epicenter of, uh, of pandemic research. Maybe is epicenter of pandemic research, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean. I, I, but that's, that's what, you know, the governor's just kind of said these things, and, you know, that, those all sound great as platitudes. But how did you get to the point where, you know, la- late last uh, year, you decided we're going to move this thing and we're going to create this timeline and we're not going to talk to the people on the ground uh, and that we're, we're where we are right now in May of 2021 with these timelines that are, you know, it's great to see the State Department of Health step up with uh, with some timelines, but they, they seem kind of unrealistic given what's happened up to this point. Um, so, you know, if the governor's got a better explanation here of, of why he's done this, uh, you know, I think it would behoove him to you know, start talking about it. Well, and I think there was the the explanation and, and the vision of what this would be in terms of a public health lab that eventually would become this pillar, as they described, of the Oklahoma Pandemic Center uh, in Stillwater. I think the expectation was and the conversation has been that they would leverage partnerships to be able to work with agriculture and and uh, other entities uh, to be able to just expand and develop, develop beyond just the basic lab services that they've been providing to this point, there's always disruption when you when you move anything. If you move it across the block or to, or a mile down the road, there's disruption. So uh, the location disruption, the opportunity to uh, uh, for folks to move or keep their job but have to relocate to Stillwater ultimately uh, was uh, it clearly has been an issue with some of these folks. But that that is just part of the process, you know, that we see not only in uh, in state government we see it in the private sector and everywhere so it's it goes it, what is the issue is not being able to uh, get past those hurdles, not being able to deal with those issues in a, in a timely, uh, efficient fashion that that allows them to do the work that people expect to get done uh, uh, for the role that they play in the state of Oklahoma. And Nevis and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. The programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.